Hello, sisters. Welcome to the Sisters in Zion podcast. This is Danielle. Daniel here with you in San Diego, California, and I'm here with my best friend, Kirsten. Hello. How are you? I'm in Hawaii. Super, super happy to be here with you all. Yay. And we're excited to launch our Women in the Gospel season, we're going to call it. You know, we have seasons on TV shows, and I figured it's time to do a new season. Our podcast, if you've been following us for a while, or maybe you're brand new to hearing about us, but we started this many, a couple years ago because we just have had this amazing friendship started and based on gospel principles is how we got to know each other here in San Diego. We were in college at a singles ward and our friendship just grew into having these deep, just amazing spiritual conversations. And if several years ago, Kirsten said to me, we should record this. And that's kind of what, how it morphed into, well, I guess we could just do a podcast. And we started doing that. And we've just been so grateful to connect with many of you who have enjoyed our journey. And our podcast up to this point has just been talking about our, what's going on in the week, our daily thoughts, our daily journeys, our processing versus like anything like specific on a subject, we would just really just come authentically to you with our week. And we, Kirsten and I also in this time have been studying about women in the gospel. It's been uh, something that's very interest, uh, big interest for us. And we both have similar books we've studied and we've talked about it. And a few weeks ago, I got this insight that just was like, we should do a new season and call it women in the gospel and actually have some intentional conversations. And if you listen to our podcast from last week, we introduced what we're going into and we are talking about the amazing beauty that women have the power that women have. And this topic today is actually going to be on Tamar, who is um, the first of the descendants of the lineage of Christ. And so, so I said that wrong, not descendant, but the first antecedent, right? The, the pre-ancestor, <laughs> however you say that. And so we're going to, you'll, you'll understand what I mean as we get into this. So we're, we're really excited to talk about Tamar and just her beauty. And the name of this podcast, this episode is called Unveiled, and you will see why we call it Unveiled. And I know last week we talked a little bit about the unveiling of women and what that means when women are no longer to be veiled. And I think this is a really important thing to bring up again because this is not what typical or society or maybe what we've thought in tradition, it doesn't mean um, to veil women because they're weak. It's the exact opposite. It's because they are strong. And we talked a lot about that in the last episode, so I won't go too much into it, but that's what I love about this topic on Tamar. And if you want to kind of look at some of the books, um, the book we're talking about today, uh, Lineage of Grace by Francine Rivers. It's an incredible book of the lineage of Christ. And so Tamar is the first of that lineage that we are going to discuss. Beautiful. I'm excited. I want to say um, just my initial thoughts. I've read this book twice and this chapter of all the chapters shocked me the most. Um, this story, this woman, and what I love about this is that we 
as you know, women in 2020 can look back on this woman who was, you know, more than 2000 years ago, right? I mean, the culture and the society and everything that she was growing up in is very different from ours. I mean, it, the whole concept of it is like, what? She did what? You know, and we just in passing just kind of say, oh yeah, this is what happened. We're, I mean, we are just, my first reaction is kind of being appalled. I, I can't even imagine, you know, what, what would have been going through her head, you know, but what is so amazing is to see that in her culture and her society and her way in that time, this meant everything. And God knew that it meant everything too. And so I love that my, I can leave my judgments at the door as I read her story and I can really feel into what it meant for her in her life and how God used her unique experience and courage and faith and devotion to build the lineage of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm excited to dive into what she was all about. Thank you. That's awesome. I agree. Her courage. I love this story. It's definitely one of my favorites in this book on the lineage of um of Christ. And so let's, let me give you the context. Let me give you a little bit of background. We'll kind of talk about her story, interject some conversation, and then kind of wrap it up at the end with our final thoughts on this unveiling. I love it. So Tamar, um, spelled T-A-M-A-R, and she's a Canaanite woman. So Canaanites in the time believed in polytheism, which is they worship different gods, they had um, Asherah, which is the queen of the gods, and a dozen others, uh, Baal, which is god of fertility, Gad, which is the god of fortune, Adonis, which is god of youth and beauty and desire. Um, and they were just a very idolatrous and licentious um, society, very, lots of sexual immorality, human sacrifice. And their gods actually historically morphed into the Greek gods of what we're pretty familiar with. So... I love this about Tamar's name. It means date palm, which means beautiful and graceful. And on page 15, she talks about it was a name given to one who would become beautiful and graceful. A date palm survives the desert and bears sweet, nourishing fruit. I think that's so cool. It survives the desert. And this girl actually came from a very fertile family. And a date palm, it sways in the desert without breaking or being uprooted. So I think that's a really cool description to kind of give you an idea, not only what her name means, but what Tamar, what she was like as a woman. She was, um, was able to be um, strong even in the desert and not be uprooted. And you're going to see that in her story. So, so going on. So that's Tamar. Now let's talk about Judah. So Judah was the fourth of six sons by Leah. So if you remember the story of um, Jacob and Rachel, um, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. Um, I'll just kind of quickly summarize. And it, um, Laban said, okay, work for seven years. You can marry Rachel. He goes to marry Rachel and under the veil is Leah instead of Rachel. So he has to work another seven years. So he had to work 14 years to marry who, we, who he was in love with. But, um, and then, but in the meantime was married to Leah first. So Leah was the oldest sister of Rachel. So he marries Leah and Judah was the fourth of six sons that Leah um, and him produced. So, so Jacob ultimately is, becomes Israel. So you know who that is. 
So Judah, yeah. I add something to that that I just thought was like so interesting. So, you know, so these are the, these are the sons who end up selling their brother Joseph into Egypt. Okay. And I think most of us know that story, like Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat or whatever, you know, however you've heard it, these are who these people are. Now I, I never knew until I started studying this, that the reason why Joseph's brothers didn't like him that much. I mean, they, they, they hated him enough to put him in a pit and then sell him to, you know, other people. J, uh, Joseph, and, and maybe he was a little arrogant. I mean, who knows what his personality was like, but he was actually the son of Rachel. So finally, so, so Leah and, and, and Jacob have all these sons, you know, and, and, but he never even wanted to marry Leah in the first place. He got tricked into marrying her. She has a bunch of sons. And then finally he works long enough to be able to marry who he's in love with, marries her, has Joseph. So the, Joseph is their half brother actually. And they were always jealous of him and he kind of did I don't know if he loved him more or not, but kind of, I mean, and it was from the woman that he wanted to create his family with. So again, interesting how God uses any situation, any family situation, anyone in any, any place, any one of us can be used by God for the greater good of all of his purposes. Even like if you got tricked into marrying someone you didn't want to marry. I mean, this so interesting that this story actually comes through one of the sons of Jacob who he got, who came only because he got tricked into marrying Leah, you know, and God yeah. uses this lineage to bring Christ to the world. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for summing that up. Um, so that is, you were talking about the 12 um, sons of Israel. Judah is the fourth of the six son of Leah and one of the 12. Yep. And so <clears throat> Judah's tribe, um, as again, all of the tribes, their goal is, and, and their, their mantle is to provide posterity to strengthen their people. So we know Jacob or Israel, right? His name changed to Israel. They, they believe in monotheism, which is one God versus the polytheism of other people in the time, which is the Canaanites. So, so their, their stewardship is to strengthen and have sons and daughters and just grow this tribe and grow the doctrine of Christ. And that's really the key here. And so they all know that this is really important, not only just to grow, to grow the doctrine, but to strengthen their people against um, other lands and people wanting to take over. And, you know, um, it's a political, you know, move as well, I would say. So, so Judah uh, marries um, someone who is a Canaanite. And let's see, let me try to get my notes here. So he has three sons from this Canaanite woman and the Canaanite woman that Judah marries follows the Canaanite gods. She's um, definitely um, still a Canaanite woman, right? So, yeah. I want to just say something. I, I want to take you to this, understand where, where he, where Judah came from. Like he's this son of this wonderful man, you know, Israel, like, you know, all of that. Then they sell his brother to these slave traders in Egypt, okay? That all but destroyed him. Like the guilt from knowing that he did something like that. So remember, he's raised in this family of, of like solid member family. You know what I mean? Like this is raised in the gospel. 
and he goes and marries a, a Canaanite woman. Like he goes and goes completely out of his father's land. In this time, you don't leave your father's land. You stay in your father's land and you bring and raise up posterity, like you said, to make your father's family stronger. So for him to be actually the fourth son of Judah and to leave the tribe and go and marry someone outside of their religion and their whole family, the priesthood in their home, all of that is, is actually a pretty like intense move. So he's already pretty unhappy. Yeah. Uh, great for bringing in that context. He's already feeling he has the guilt. He doesn't really um, believe he's worthy to come back to his father's house or, you know, and serve the God that he betrayed. And so that is a lot of the context of what's going on in his mind. And he marries a woman who continues to um, worship the gods, her polytheism. And, and the, so they have three sons and their name, first son is Ur, which is spelled E-R. The second son is Onan, which is spelled O-N-A-N. And the third son is Sheila, spelled S-H-E-L-A-H. Hopefully that kind of gives you context in your brain as you're looking at these names. Um, so, so these three sons, um, Judah needs to obviously marry, uh, get a, a wife for his son, Ur, which is the very first son. So he leaves home. Well, let me back up kind of what you were just talking about. So he, when Judah, like you said, he leaves home and he goes and finds, um, he moves to Adullam where he met his wife his wife, the Canaanite woman. And he sought, so then he seeks, seeks a wife out for, um, for Ur, the oldest son. And this, at these times, the culture, the fathers decided um, who their children married. And so Judah goes to Zimron, which is a guy in Canaan, who, and asks for his daughter Tamar to marry Ur. So they're Canaanites. And Zimron is Tamar's, um, Tamar's father, agrees, and they arrange the marriage. And at this time, you know, especially in these times, a wife's place was really to bear children. If she did not bear children, she could be cast out. She'd have no inheritance and she would also not be accepted back into her, fa uh, her father's home. She basically has, if she has no children, she has no standing, no place, no home, no household. She really is there, you know, in, you know, in lack of our own understanding just to bear children. So she marries Ur, but he's really cruel to her. He's, he's evil. He says in the scriptures, he's wicked and he follows the Canaanite gods. And what's interesting and the Bible's really kind of direct with it. Basically we assume Ur must, um, he would not raise children unto the God of Israel and he was only going to stay, you know, raising to his mother's religion, which is the Canaanite religion, which is the one he knew the area he lived in and it just says in the Bible, he got struck down. <laughs> so he did. So he dies in their first little while of being married because again, we see he's not going to um, bring about the posterity um, unto, um, unto the God of Israel. So he gets struck down dead. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting in this story, I feel like, is almost instantly Tamar is interested in the God of Israel. She remember she's raised as a Canaanite. She she only knows Baal and and all these different gods, right? But she's now married into this home, and she has an instant interest in the God of Israel. And and it's kind of like something that 
uh, Judah, her father-in-law, doesn't want to talk about. He's kind of like, he's like, it's like he, it's like you used to be a member of the church and now you're married into a family and nobody around you is a member of the church. But yet here you've got this daughter-in-law that comes to you and wants to serve you, serve your family and be such a good little daughter-in-law. And she's asking you about like your family and your religion and all that. And he's like, why are you asking me about, like, he got a little annoyed and was like, ah, don't talk to me about it, you know, but but well, really, that's what the book and that's what she brings liberally into the book. The Bible doesn't talk as much like that, but yeah, that's what she says in the book. They talked about, but she was clearly interested in the gospel and she felt the spirit even just of the God of Israel. She just kind of had like this inkling about it, you know, and I think that that really led her to the actions and the devotion that she, she had. Yeah, and we ultimately know that because of her raising her children into the God of Israel, and so that's, yeah, absolutely. So let's um, so let's look at the tradition of the times. Um, Judah, I mean Judah, uh, Ur dies, and so the tr tradition of the times is that in both Israelite and Canaanite is that the widow marries the next brother, um, who's in line for the inheritance and the lineage, but. Um, the son, the, the child, the first child from this brother would actually inherit Ur's and would actually be, um, the first son's lineage instead of actually being the second son's lineage. So, so again, we're just looking at only a son can secure Tamar's position. And so in Judah's clan, right, he needs sons and daughters in order to be a strong clan his failure to provide children um, would mean like a failure of his whole lineage, right? He, he had chosen Tamar to bring about this lineage uh, that for, to strengthen his clan. And it would just be a failure of her role if she didn't provide children. So after 70 days from Ur's death, he, he calls, um, he summons Tamar and he says, okay, I'm going to give you to Onan, his second son. So Tamar, um, about this time, you know, it's like she, like Kirsten just said, she, the book talks about that she gets curious about Judah's God and she senses the fear, um, from this God, the God had the power to, um, take Ur's life. And since he refused to raise children in, um, with Judah's God. So she does, she starts to get like, well, this God has a lot more power than my gods is kind of what we can interpret from the text. So so Onan, okay, this is the second son, and Tamar's um, first son, like I was saying, was, is to be the heir of Ur's portion of the inheritance. The son was thought of as Ur's son, not Onan's, and the brother was to conceive and give um, his son to Ur's lineage, to Ur's lineage, sorry, Ur is the name. So Onan, being very selfish, does not want to give his portion. Um, he wants to keep Ur's portion for himself, his oldest son. So he refused to have a child with um, Tamar. And it says, you know, you can read it in Genesis. Oh, actually, let's read it. Genesis 38, 9. It can kind of give you guys the context of it, but it's very interesting. 38, it says, Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass when he went in unto his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground lest he should give seed to his brother. So he treated her as a harlot. He would not um, allow her to get pregnant. And what's interesting in the Bible, actually, let's just go to read it. I thought it's kind of funny. It's not, well, it's not funny, but, and the Lord was displeased with Onan 
And so he slew him. That's what it says. So Onan dies. So now we have two, Judah has three sons. Two sons are dead. Ur and Onan are dead. They both refuse to um, obey God, the God of Israel. Um, and so they're both dead. And this is the time where um, Tamar is really questioning, I'm assuming. Like we're going, whoa, what is going on? Like this is really happening because now two husbands have died. And technically Tamar would have claim to the third son of Judah, Judah which is his last son. And after 75 days passed of Onan's death, um, Judah summons her, but he did not want to give her to Sheila, the third son, because he felt that he was nervous. He was had fearful that Sheila would die also. And so he gave the excuse, hey, he's not old enough. You go back to your father's home. I'll call on you when it's time to marry him. So that's kind of the context. So Sheila, um, he legally um, and honorably was supposed to give Sheila, but he decided, oh, well, he's not old enough. So Tamar was sent back to her father's house. And you guys have to understand, this is a shame. Like it is a huge shame. One, you have two husbands that died. You haven't fulfilled your duty per se of having children and you're getting sent back. And she didn't even know if she would be allowed back in. So she's childless, rejected and cast out. They give her a small little loaf of barley and a skin of water. And she walks, has to walk the eight miles back to her father's house. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how you'd be feeling with that? It's, it's so hard for us to comprehend how poorly she was treated. Like, it's like her dad was like, no, I already paid. No, I received, let's see. Like, basically I sold you. You're an animal and I sold you. And I, I don't want you back and I'm not even going to receive you back. In fact, when she gets back to her dad's house, he's like, I mean, treats her terribly, hurts her and then sends her over to the, to be a slave, basically to be a servant. He's like, you can be a servant in my house, but like, you're not my daughter. You don't have a nice warm bed. I'm not going to take care of you anymore. You can earn your keep with the servants in the house and you're basically worth nothing and you have to wear your mourning garment like forever so so traditionally they would have to wear their mourning garment which would be like a black you know like a veil and a black head to toe mm -hmm. yeah head to toe black basically to to show that you're mourning and that you're a widow and he basically is like you have to wear that forever like as long as you're here you wear that right well, she, I, we don't know if it's her father that says that, but yes, she wears it to be loyal possibly okay. to the household. So we don't know if her father makes her, but, but yeah, I mean, but there's significance in that, right? Like that, that the veil, she, well, she's veiled in black. She's veiled in black. And that is how anybody could identify her is, oh, that would be her because she would be veiled in black. So anyway, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so she's seen as a failure and she would also was seen as like, um, not, it wasn't sorcery necessarily, but that she would bring ill fortune, like kind of like a plague. And we, you, see, you have Judah casting her out and it appeared to others that she had caused this huge misfortune. The two sons that she married both die. Oh, her mother-in-law is like so against her. Like in the book, so yeah. mean to her in the book and it's just like, oh my gosh, makes her feel terrible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, 
So he, um, so she gets back to her father's house. So he has other daughters and, you know, sons that he needs to marry. And like you said, like, they just feel like they're just kind of like, Ooh, we're really eerie of her. This looks bad upon our household. The fact that you're back. So, um, he, he actually sends her to live with the servants and to, and to be, um, act as a servant versus like actually be accepted in the household because they didn't want her ill fortune to pass upon the sisters and then have a problem with him being able to marry other people in the family. So, so all the, these six years about go by and she's still in her black veiling. She's being loyal to her household that she is in. A, she's a woman in mourning and that, you know, uh, Judah has said, I'll send for you for Sheila. She has no other prospects. It's not like she can go, oh, well, I'll go get married somewhere else then. You know, it's, it's not, there's nothing else for her. And Judah still doesn't send for her. And so she actually, she keeps holding, this is what I thought was interesting. I took note. She holds on to her hope though. I think her wearing the black, um, it's called the TISAP. I can't say it very well, but TISAP, T-S-A-I-P-H is her way of, I mean, it's tradition, but also, I mean, just holding on to her hope and staying loyal to her, the household of Judah that she is meant to be in. So she stays faithful to her promise and she wears these garments all those years and it covers her, like we said, head to toe. But then we have going on in Judah's household, Judah's wife dies. And this was his only wife and he had, you know, didn't have concubines or anything at the time. So we have Judah has, his wife has passed and his two oldest sons has passed, have passed away. And we just have Sheila. Somehow in the context of uh, uh, Tamar ends up learning and seeing um, Sheila that he's actually grown. Yeah. She's actually in the market with mm -hmm. her family and they're in the, they're in a, in a booth where they sold, you know, their, their, items that their family would make and they were doing business in the market and uh she actually sees sheila in the marketplace and he's a grown man now and she's like what the heck judah like you didn't send for me you ha he's a man obviously i mean it's been six years mm -hmm. and 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 she realizes then that judah has no intention of of actually making the deal they had right so he just figures oh i mean it's been six years i'll just let her stay there at her father's house and dwindle away and die and it's not my problem anymore basically yeah he's and trying sheila, to sweep it under a rug yeah and sheila doesn't want her he's like uh my my two brothers died when they were with this woman so he's like i'm not doing that you know so they really dishonored the the contract that they had with her and her family yeah, absolutely. And it leaves her with nothing is the sad thing about that. And, and according to the custom of their people, so if, if Judah wasn't willing to marry her to the last brother or to the next brother in line, then he himself is in charge of producing an heir. He owed her one. And so if it's not going to pass on, then the father owes this contract, like you called it, you know, and it was, it was her right to have a child within that household since she was quote unquote sold to the household. So as she sees him and she realizes, like you said, Judah's not going to uphold his end of the bargain. He's not staying loyal and I have stayed loyal. So Tamar realizes that he's not honoring his promise. And she finds out that 
um, after about Judah's wife dying and that he's going to Timnah, which it seems like if you read in the Bible, it looks like it's like a red light type of a district um, to soothe his woes. <laughs> and she comes up with a very clever pl plan to secure her position as a woman already given to the household of Judah. There were no other options for her to remarry. So she would, if she does not act now, she would have to live a fate as a dishonored woman in her parents' service, no children, no honor, no respect, no inheritance, and no husband and nothing to call her own. So this, if we can kind of see that context, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. And Judah's dragging his feet to really be honorable. And she's like, I am not, I, I just, I look at her courage. So let's talk about what happened. We can talk about what it took for her belief in herself, this, this honor she had enough love for herself to do this. So, so, okay. So she realized she could not wait for Judah to do what was right. So she veils herself. She changes out of her black, um, garb and veiling and she veils herself to pose as a harlot and and so she she had to go to judah because she had no other choice in order to honor this promise so she takes off her black tispa i can't say it right um clothing um and her widow clothing she veils herself um head to toe by night and goes to the city of it's called enam which is a crossroads to timna so he's on his way. Judah's on his way to Timnah, but she meets him before that. And he's like, oh, so she catches Judah's attention there, but he doesn't recognize her. Again, it's been a lot of years and she's veiled. And he asks her to let him come in under her and lie with her. And she says, well, what will thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? And I'm reading some stuff from the Bible. And he says, he'll send her a baby goat. From his flock. I think that's so cute. I'm like, I want a baby goat. <laughs> but <laughs> she, so that's, that's how you paid for, you know, that red light district stuff in the day. But anyway, she asks, I want to sleep with your father-in-law for a goat, but you're, but you would like a baby goat. <laughs> yeah, I'll buy one. <laughs> but she asks for a pledge to make, to like secure that he'll really send this goat. Right. And he says, well, what kind of pledge? So she says, I want your signet, which is like his, his signature, his ring that identifies him and his bracelets and his staff. So she gets three things that would be unmistakable that he gave them to her. And he, he, he agreed because he's, you know, he wants, he's in the moment and he agreed and he gave her all of those three things laid with her. And what's interesting is that Again, she needed something to bear his name so that she, he would have to honor his promise. So Judah then gets back and he has his friend send the goat. And he says, hey, go take this goat and get my, get my things returned. And so the friend goes to this city in Inam, Inam, I think it's set in Alm, something like that's called. And he goes to find the girl to give her, give her the goat in exchange for those three things but he cannot find the girl anywhere in this little town. And he asks around, they don't know who she is. She's not like an, obviously a frequent person there. So the, the friend returns with the goat still. And, and Judah's like, what? And so this is weird, right? So three months pass and it's confirmed that she's pregnant. And actually her brothers and her family and neighbors start noticing and they're angry with her calling her a harlot and that she was unfaithful. And Judah hears the rumor and he's furious. 
he is so mad that she didn't honor that. I thought this was interesting. And I say he's mad because of what it says in the Bible. He says, let her burn and die. So he's willing to burn her and let her die because she was dishonest or not dishonest, but thinking she had dishonestly slept outside because if she were to have a child, it would become part of his household. Just so you guys know, that's the tradition of the time. So it wasn't like, oh, she had a child and so you're on your own. It means it would be his heir. So he's mad because he hears about this. But this also gives him an opportunity to get rid of her, right? So he's like, okay, here we go. Wait, she, she's done this. So I'm going to burn her so her child isn't born to, my, to be my heir. So, so she tells her servant um, to take the staff, the sinyat, and the bracelet. And she tells her servant to say something specific to Judah. So Judah calls in the servant. And he's, he says he's mad. And he, the servant says, by whose, by the man whose these are, and she presents the staff and the signature thing, uh, the ring and, and the uh, bracelets. She says, by who man, who, by the man whose these are, she is with child. And the servant says to Judah, whose are these? So whose are these things, these three things I'm holding? Does that make sense? Make sure yeah. I'm clear. Okay. No, 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 just keep going. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm so, cause sometimes, yeah, I trip on the words here, but Judah then recognizes, obviously he's like, Oh, that's mine. <laughs> and he realizes too, that she has been faithful all of these years to her promises. And he knows that she did that. She had to do that because he did not fulfill his promise and his obligation of marrying her to Sheila to produce an heir. So now she's unveiled. She's unveiled. And by and begins this dynasty. She's pregnant with twins, actually, and begins this dynasty of the lineage of Christ. And this, this, her courage, this faithfulness, this loyalty, this honor, this fortitude. I mean, I, I'll finish the story, but I want to kind of come back to this. But so she bears twins. We'll just kind of finish up so you kind of have the history part. Two sons, Perez and Zara. And um, interesting, you know, it's an interesting story with themselves, but basically one's arm sticks out. So they put a scarlet thread around it and said, oh, he's the firstborn, but he actually doesn't get born first. Ferez ends up breaking out first and, and then um, Zara later, but those be, um, begin the dynasty. And so God blessed her with two sons, securing her place in the lineage of Judah. What's interesting in the Bible, it even talks about the Judah never um, laid with her again. He honored his, like they had the two sons and, and he just, he never, um, was disloyal to her again. And he treated her with a lot of respect and they moved back there. Her sons were raised knowing the God of Israel. They returned to the land of his father, um, is, um, with, with Israel and Judah renewed his relationship with God and his father and reasserted himself as leader of his brothers. And this is kind of interesting. And then we'll go back to tomorrow. He actually is the one that ends up leading them to Egypt during the famine to get grain, um, which ended up being from Joseph, as you know, you kind of brought in the beginning we talked about. And so Joseph is now in Egypt, obviously, if being sold into Egypt. And so they come and into Joseph and who they don't know who it is. And Joseph plants a gauntlet in their sack of grain just to test them. And then they, they were accused of stealing, right? So then Joseph demands the youngest child be held for prisoner for this act of stealing this gauntlet. 
And Judah actually steps forward and offers his own life instead of Benjamin. And I, I wrote down, that really struck me. I went, wow, that's not only a similitude of his repentance, but also a similitude of his lineage, offering his life for it. And so Joseph receives, um, receives them. He weeps and instructs them to bring the father and everybody to come down to the land of Goshen, including Tamar and their sons and their grandchildren. And so upon Israel's deathbed, he gives all of his sons patriarchal blessings. And Judah receives the greatest blessing is saying that he is the scepter would never leave this, this, this leadership, the scepter would never leave his lineage and that the promised one, God's anointed, the Messiah would be born to his posterity. So that's the history and why it's, so we can kind of go back now talking about Tamar. How important was it, her decision to raise her children in the, with the God of Israel, but also to be willing to risk her, her, own, uh, her own future by what she had to do, that courage, that faithfulness, the hope, everything that it took for her to do that. It's so interesting to even consider both sides of the veil, I feel like here, you know, and what was she driven by? Like, do we ever do things that we're kind of like, I feel really called to do this. I know it's what's right. And, and within, even though it may not, it seems very scary and it seems like just kind of crazy, <laughs> but it's like, I feel like, you know, there were probably, you know, her sons and all of her posterity and everyone that lined up for her. And that's what I like to think about as we live our lives. We are not alone in our lives. We are never, ever alone. We have ancestors. We have a, a lineage of grace, just like Tamar did, just like our Savior did. We have that too. And we have children and, and other people in our posterities, you know, around us who help us. And, and I just, I really believe that. I think of her two sons that were like, all right, you know, like we got to do this. Like we got to be born. This is, this is the purpose of God. We are living out the purpose of God. His glory is to bring to pass our immortality and, and his great plan of happiness. And we get to play a part in that, in that well, just like Mar did. Sorry about that. Yeah. I, and I, for me too, like I, I love what you just said. And we get to play a part in just honoring what God's purposes are. And I also think of like Tamar, like she wasn't like, the, the, oh, I'm from this awesome lineage and here I go. Everything just goes easy. Get married, have children. I mean, she was in a very precarious situation, tons of judgment from even the culture, let alone, I mean, even in our time, it would be a little like, whoa, you married two people and they both died. Like she, she had a lot of situations that would cause gossip and judgment and disowning and casting out. And I think, I mean, and my situation is nothing like hers. That's not what I mean. But I think of, especially when I was um, in the beginning of my thirties and just still not having, you know, not married and not having children. It was just like, what's wrong? Like why was Danielle not getting married? And like, you know, you, you become a little bit odd to what's the norm in, in society, or at least within your own family and within the church. And so it's nothing like what Tamar went through, but I do understand like, wow, what is my, what is my purpose if I'm not having children, if I'm not married and, and this person's not honoring this marriage contract. And I just think of what faith 
it took, so even before she knew the God of Israel in a sense of like having it explained through a, you know, missionary discussion, she showed such faith and fortitude. Yeah. Yeah. These characteristics that so many of our sisters have in the, in, in the world, in our relationships, right? Like, you know, in the church, out of the church, anywhere, nowhere near the church, right? You know, believing in multiple gods, like all these things, like it's, it, it's the character that God created in you and in me and in all of us that we can recognize in others and see their power and their wisdom and to not judge based on anyone's circumstances or anyone's life, you know, what life has handed them. And, and just to have faith always that God can take anyone in any situation, in anything, the possibilities are limitless and bring about his purposes. And I believe, and, and I mean this with respect, sometimes Danielle and I, we like to call our savior, Jesus Christ, our best friend. And sometimes we like to give him high fives. And sometimes I like to lovingly banter a little bit. And when he works a miracle in my life, I think things, not always, but this is kind of, it'll make you giggle, but I'm like, oh, you're showing off. Like, you know what I mean? It's kind of like a, he likes to show his power in your life. He wants to take you from the hardest situation to then be able to show you the miracle of what he is there to do for you. And so I think Tamar is an example of so many different things. But one thing for me is just to show me that, no matter, and even especially in the most dire of situations and the most really requiring you to have the most faith is where the greatest miracles and purposes of God do unfold. And he loves to show forth those miracles and power for us so that we can witness his power and glory in our lives. Yeah, I love that. He does not work in the ways of the world at all. And what I mean by that is he he himself was born in the most awkward, I would say, or humble of circumstances that was awkward to the world at the time. Tamar, her situation, which she is the beginning of the lineage of Christ with Judah, um, came from a situation extremely awkward. Again, humble, awkward to the judgments of man in the world, but very humbling, fortifying her as a woman of faith. I mean, I even know in my own circumstance of not being married and having children, it has caused me to just reflect on some inner work, some humility and things that I have not been able just to go along with the ways that I would say a lot of my friends and family have been able to do, which is having children and, you know, being married and having children. And so it, it, it's not even anything like tomorrow. It's not what I mean, but I know there are so many women, if I was back in those days and never married, never have children. I mean, I would have nothing. I would be an outcast. And imagine how many of the women in those days did have that situation, did have that scenario. And he really uses that to bring us unto him. That's what's beautiful. I love that. I also think it's really important for us to see, and we will continue to see. Like right now, it's such a turning point in everything. Every paradigm and thought process, all of it has been just shaken up like an etch-a-sketch, right? Where we're at right now in, in 2020. And if you look at the purposes of God, I love how you, how you, you know, pointed out his purposes, his ways are not our ways. So the world has social norms and 
culture and the way things are and the beliefs that are formed around these things. So when we, yeah, when we traditions and we look at Tamara and her situation and we kind of, we're a little bit appalled. We're like, holy crap, I would never want to do that. It's crazy, you know, but God never judged her. God never saw it any way other than my ways are not your ways. We will bring about the best, the immortality, the eternal life of man. And so now as we relate it to being in 2020 and we look at, you know, I would say, Danielle, just to your point of like, you know, not being married and this and that, you know, you've carried a lot of that generational, you know, we all carried that generational belief of women and their purpose and like all of that, you know, what we think they are and what we think they're not and what it's supposed to look like and what it's not supposed to look like. Those things have been shifting really for, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't know how long I have only been alive for 39 years, but uh, I would say what I have seen in the last 20 years of it shifting, of women having a different role, of women not and men not getting married as young anymore, not having like just, but that is, it's all societal. All of those things, all those beliefs about it, everything that we have to overcome and, you know, get over our own unworthiness or, or fear or pain or any of that is all constructed by our society and our traditions. God will use those things for us for our greatest good, but he did not construct those beliefs about women, about any of those things. He did not construct that. So even though that existed 2000 years ago and whatever exists today, we must seek God's will. We must always rise above that and find his purposes, his ways, our, our role in fulfilling his purpose for us and our brothers and sisters on this earth earth and rise above those traditions. You know, when we feel, Oh, I had to overcome this or I had to overcome that, that was constructed by us and our ancestors and our framework, not by our God. Yeah, I agree. Such a beautiful way to say it. And it's really overcoming all senses of judgment that we have that has trickled down. Like you said, it, it's, that's the number one step, right? The number one branch is overcoming that judgment. And I, I, yeah, I love this story. I feel, I, I felt a really, I don't know, just this honor towards Tamar and just, wow. Like she was so loyal and had so much faith and had vision. And, and I love her determination. I am not just going to live the rest of my life as a servant in my father's home, be outcast, be ill thought. I have been, you know, given this promise that I am to provide Judah with, you know, heirs and I'm going to do so. And I just love her tenacity to be able to do so and her belief in herself. And I also think she had those things, but I also think she was listening to the spirit of God was guiding her on how to do that. And he does that with us. We're not alone. He, he does not judge and he does not live by the constraints are the forms and the boxes that we put life into. And the story really teaches you that. I love that. I agree. And I think he also knows that those boxes and stories and forms exist. 
And so then he still can use those things for us, right? So even tomorrow, like, well, I've got to have an error with Judah. That's got to happen. You know what I mean? And if that was us today, we'd be like, see ya, Judah. Like, I'm out, you know? And so it wouldn't work the same today, but God works the same today. God knows all of it. He knows the beginning from the end. And so whatever, whatever societal confines we are living in today, we can still bring about the purposes of God with our own limited understanding. That's why when I, yeah. when I approach God and in my prayers, I'm like, I know I'm just a baby. I know, I know I don't know everything. I don't know all of it. I am, I am limited by the, the structure and the things that my tradition and all of that, you know, please help me rise above that and come closer through the spirit and through the atonement of Jesus Christ to thee and to the greatest purpose that I could be here. And that's kind of how I, that's how I live. You know, I think that's how we're all trying to live. Right. Yeah, I agree. It's just that having him break down those barriers of like the boxes, the judgments, the narrative, and just seeking his truth in all of it and overcoming her story is so phenomenal. I just can't wait to meet her one day. (laughs) Excited to meet more, meet her, hear more about like the actual context that maybe we don't know too. So wonderful, you guys. Thank you for joining us for this first introduction to the women in the gospel talking about tomorrow. And we're going to next week, we'll probably go into the next section, which is on, um, gosh, uh, from Jericho. What's her name? Let me look it up. Rahab. Rahab. Thank you. Oh my gosh. If I could just love somebody more than tomorrow, it might be Rahab. I don't know. They just get better and better. I mean, I don't even want to say better, but they're, oh, Rahab. Oh my gosh. Okay. We're not going to go into it right now, but make sure. (laughs) If you only listen to two of these episodes, I'm telling you, Tamar and Rahab, like Rahab will blow your mind. She is such a powerhouse woman. I just, I'm so excited about where she comes from and what happens through her. It's just, oh, I have chills right now. Yay. Oh, so exciting. And it's just so fun to see like these women in the gospel and that's what we're doing. We're showing that it doesn't have to look in a certain way in the constructs that we've put it in. These are these are beautiful, amazing women of faith in such different contexts. And so join us next time to talk about Rahab from Jericho in this lineage of Christ. All right, everybody, have a wonderful rest of your day. Great to be with you today. Bye-bye. Bye.